Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Cool. There are some things uh, in my life that I have uh, had to learn the hard way. Um, had to go to the school of hard knocks for, right? Um, where I wasn't responding to what uh, I knew was right, or what the Lord uh, had made known to me, what was right and good. And also what my parents had taught me, um, any number of ways that the Lord was showing me that some, something was right or wrong, right? Uh, who here has learned something the hard way in life? Yeah. Um, so when I was uh, in elementary school, I started uh, a bad habit, a sinful habit, of stealing things. And uh, I would steal sports cards. I would steal, um, I stole some action figures. Uh, I, um, and one time, and this is where the Lord had to use me learning the hard way. Uh, in fourth, I guess it was in fourth or fifth grade, I had a girlfriend. And um, I really wanted to get her, uh, I, I went into the store and I saw a pair of parrot earrings. They were big parrots. And I thought for some reason she would like that. So I tried to take them and I got caught. And the Lord really used that to uh, scare that out of me at some level. Uh, so I had to learn that the hard way. And also, uh, as I look back on that, and many other things that I've had to learn, um, I just, I'm amazed at how the Lord worked in and through circumstances through other people, that his kindness and leading me to Christ was happening in the midst of all those things. That his, his uh, care for me, his pursuit after me, his calling me to be one of his children, that continued on through me stealing things and all the other gamut of things that I've done to turn away from him in, Right? And really, that's what we find with Jacob. And we're going to be in Genesis uh, 29. So I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 29, or pull it up on your phone or whatever. And as we've been going through this series of um, faithful fathers, uh, kind of the, the beginnings of, of who God was working through to to choose his people, and um, we kind of see two things that, yes, there's a level of faithfulness that these men had, uh, but that faithfulness was only given to them by God, and really we end up getting pointed to the fact that God is our faithful father, ultimately, uh, because these people are dreadfully <laughs> uh, deficient in many ways, right? And so we've, we've even seen with, with Jacob that uh, he is a, a big-time deceiver and a trickster. And wow, 
God choosing this man for the promise to go through, uh, that just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways in our minds and hearts. Um, but I would say that about myself too, right? doesn't make any sense that he would choose me to be one of his children. That doesn't make any sense in light of who I know I am and who I've been, right? So there's a sense in which we should be confronted with that today in this passage, and we should be comforted by it. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help right now. Lord, uh, you are good, um, and Lord, we sang about you being steadfast, and your steadfast love endures forever, and you are faithful to all generations. So we thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that you would help us now, uh, that your word would be clear to us, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our minds and our hearts uh, so that we can um, love you more, trust you more, and Lord, that we wouldn't be just uh, hearers of the words, but doers. So please help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, in Genesis 29, these first uh, 35 verses or so, there's kind of two main things that we're going to see. We're going to see that the, that the deceiver is deceived, and, or the trickster is tricked in Jacob, right? He's going to have some things come his way. And we're also going to see uh, God's tenderness and his eyes for the afflicted and the downcast. And so in those two main things, we're going to see his promise pushing through and him making sure that things are happening as he planned and promised. Um, so as we start in 29, we see in verses 13 through 16 that uh, we see Laban is excited about Jacob being there. Uh, and this is him. Um, be, Jacob was sent to his family and, and Jacob was able to, to find them. And Laban's excited. And Laban is Jacob's uncle. OK, so the journey there and we have a scene there. Uh, at the well and meeting Rachel. So then that, that brings us down to that 13 where, where Jacob is excited about Jacob, his family member, being there. Then in 17 and 18, uh, we see that there's a specific thing said uh, about how Jacob feels about late Rachel and Leah. Um, I was about to say Rachel and Rhea. Um, <laughs> about Rachel and Leah. So Jacob clearly loves Rachel over Leah. And we see that there's a clear connection there. We don't know absolutely to what total sense it's in, but he's, he is uh, attracted to her by her external beauty. And his love is somewhat attached to that. Now, uh, so we immediately, at some sense, we're kind of like, oh man, poor Leah. Poor Leah. And at the same time, uh, we can recognize that some people are attracted to one thing, other people are attracted to another thing. Um, 
And a few things we can say about external beauty, right? Like uh, it's attached to um, culture and time and location, right? They have those studies about, um, you know, the, the pictures of women in magazines of the past and how uh, pictures of women long ago wouldn't be considered attractive today by today's standards or whatever. So there's a sense of time in that. Uh, and also location, depending on what culture you're in, where you're at in the world. Uh, there are ways in which men and women are attractive in other cultures that we would be like, no, don't feel like that. That is where I'm at at all. So external beauty is kind of a changing thing. It's even changing in terms of our own ages, right? Uh, As we grow older, supposedly we don't uh, look as beautiful anymore. We don't look as handsome anymore, maybe. So things even change with our ages. And I'm thankful that the Lord is not focused on external beauty. I'm thankful for that. We're going to get to that more uh, in that second half of our passage here. But in 19 and 20, we see that Laban strikes a deal in regards to Jacob working for him. And Laban's deal seems honest at first. Seems like we can trust the guy. It says Laban said, oh, so Jacob, sorry. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So Laban's deal seems honest, uh, but we do find out later, spoiler alert, uh, he, is de- he is a deceiver also. And even later on in a, a later passage of Genesis, uh, he deceives Jacob in regards to a deal they make for sheep. So Laban, uh, we find, is not to be trusted. And we do see that Jacob has a deep love for Rachel, like the because of the way it's described that he served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I mean, that's a sweet statement right there, isn't it? That he had a genuine love for her and boy, the time just passed because he was so excited to end up being married to her. But in 21, uh, we see things take a turn. So Jacob is ready to, to marry Rachel. So they have a big feast. But in the end at night, Laban gives Leah to Jacob. And Jacob has no idea. They are together that night. And so now there's a sense in which they are joined together. But Jacob doesn't realize it till the morning. I mean, just in this story, aren't you just confronted again, as we already have been, with 
the Lord is not shy about sharing difficult situations that are happening in his people, even people that are supposed to be the ones carrying the promise. I mean, this is just a, this is a situation that makes us feel uncomfortable. But God's word doesn't shy away from these things. God is not wanting to hide the sins of and the, and the weird things happening with even the people that he is putting his promise through. And this, once again, should be a comfort to us because he's doing the same thing through us and how messed up we are. So the way that these things are presented, now hopefully this hasn't happened to any of you. Hopefully someone was not switched on your wedding night. Okay? But at the same time, like, there should be a sense in which we say, wow, there is some crazy, messed up stuff going on here, and the Lord is wanting to show us these things. And in the end, we end up seeing that even through all this mess, the Lord is seen as the one who is steadfast through it all, and his promise is carrying out. So the trickster is tricked here. And we find out that Laban is, is a, a shyster. And essentially, um, and, and just in this moment, before we even get to, to how the Lord treats Leah, you're just, you just even, maybe you haven't asked yourself this question, but I realized this this time as I was looking at this passage, that, man, Laban is a jerk. Like, he forces Leah to be with someone who doesn't want her. He puts her in a situation immediately that is going to be difficult. And maybe Laban was thinking, we don't see this expressly, but maybe Laban's thinking, you know, I can tell that Leah, in an outwardly sense, isn't as attractive as what Rachel is. I may never be able to marry her off, so I, I just have to get rid of her in this way. We don't see it saying that specifically. But you just have to wonder, like, he's giving her to someone and it, we can't fault Jacob at some level. He's expressed who he does want. He's expressed that he wants to marry Rachel. But he puts Leah in her place. Laban does. So there's lots of interconnected mess here. And the Lord is working in it all. Uh, I was really blessed by one of my favorite um, commentators on the Bible is James Montgomery Boyce. And if you ever want to um, just read something that, that just reads in a very devotional way, but really uh, just handles the scriptures well, uh, it's his commentaries on some of the different books of the Bible. So I would commend those to you. But here's what he says about some of the ironies that are happening in this passage, especially in relation to how they're affecting Jacob. 
the ironies of the marriages could only have been achieved by God. A moment ago, I pointed out that Jacob had been told how Esau would serve him. The elder shall serve the younger. But that he had first to learn to serve Laban. That is a first irony. But there are two more ironies. The second is that in being given first Leah and then Rachel, Jacob was forced to learn that the right of the firstborn must be respected. Because there is that sense in which Laban brings up in our culture, we give the firstborn in marriage first before we give anybody else, the first daughter. So there's an irony that now he has to adhere to that when he was not adhering to that before. The firstborn must be respected, something he had been unwilling to do in the case of his own brother Esau. The third and greatest irony was in Jacob's being deceived by Rachel's father, just as he had been instrumental in deceiving his father. Here the deceiver was deceived. He reaped as he had sown and even became part of that pattern of deceit that was to mar his long life and family relations. So these ironies that are happening are a way that God is working in and through Jacob and the people around him. Now, one thing that, that comes up in the midst of this as well, and just want to take a, a quick sidetrack here. Have you noticed that there's these multiple examples in the Old Testament of people being married to more than one person? Anybody recognize that? Raise your hand if you recognize that in the Old Testament. And you're just like, what is happening here? Like, why are there all these examples? And when we see these examples, many times we're not seeing God specifically in those moments kind of swooping in and saying, hey, now remember, you should only be married to one person. And so we're just like, well, is God condoning all this? Is he, does he, is he condoning that, that Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah? Is he condoning that David has uh, multiple wives? Is he condoning that Solomon has multiple wives? And or maybe because these guys are, are so important in his plan that he's just kind of like, hey, this is cool. These guys are important in my plan or whatever. Well, there's many things in, in the Old Testament, not just polygamy, that we don't see God speaking into those situations right then and there. They just happen. And so we have to then use other parts of Scripture to help us know, okay, God is not okay with this even though it's happening right now in this story. God does not condone it. So we see, you know, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are created, uh, one man and one woman are together. We see Jesus later on in uh, Matthew's gospel affirming to uh, the Pharisees, uh, or maybe, yeah, the Pharisees in that moment, and I think it's in Matthew 19, where he says uh, that he reestablishes Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. He goes back to the creation order and says, this is the way it's meant to be. So we see clearly in Scripture that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman. This obviously speaks against our culture right now in many ways. And 
we should know that polyamory and polygamy are more and more getting pushed to be a norm in our culture as well. It's not just happening in Utah, as we assume, okay? It's happening also in uh, places like Somerville, Massachusetts, which in July of 2020 passed some city ordinances for polyamory to be okay. So polyamory is the difference between polyamory and polygamy is with polygamy, you're entering into a more of an official marriage relationship. Whereas polyamory is more of a civil union kind of thing, I guess you could say. So we would just automatically, and even our culture, much of our culture right now would just automatically say, oh, uh, we don't feel good about that. That doesn't seem right. That would seem like that would be something our culture would say, no, we're not okay with that in general. But listen to what some are saying who are advocating for that. First of all, they're saying things like, love is love should include polygamy and polyamory. So that that phrase we hear, love is love, should include this. Because if these people love one another, how can we keep them from participating in this? How can we tell them that they can't do this? If they say they love one another, whether it's, you know, multiple husbands, multiple wives, whatever. How can we tell them that? The other thing that, we're, that they would say, too, is that these people are consenting with one another. So there's consent there. So we have love and we have consent. And those two things are powerful in our culture right now, extremely powerful. That if we have people saying they love one another and we have consent, then whatever relationship is permissible. And so the same thing is being argued for polygamy and polyamory. And this tidal wave will continue. It will rise up. Especially, too, when they're even saying things like 4 to 5% of the population, this is the estimates right now, 4 to 5% of the population are involved in some kind of polyamory kind of relationship. People who are love in love and consenting. So those things are on the horizon. And so we have to say, okay, are we going to buy into the cultural logic, the cultural wisdom, or are we going to buy into God's goodness and his commands for us and trusting in that and him leading us through that? So I just wanted to lead us through thinking through some of those things, especially as we are going to continue to see it in the Old Testament. God is not okay with it. And we see in the end, not only is he specifically commanding not to do it, but we see the strife that's caused by it. Even just between Leah and Rachel. Well, in verses 31 through 35, 
This is where we see some neat things with how the Lord looks on Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So the Lord has compassion on Leah, even though she was forced into this situation by her father. He has compassion on her. And we know that the Lord cares for the down and out. He cares for the afflicted. He cares for the cast aside. Those the world looks down on. Those those that the world forgets so often. That's why the widows and the orphans are spoken about so much in Scripture. That we're to care for them. Because they're the ones that are so easily forgotten. The widow doesn't have a husband who's caring for her anymore. And the orphan doesn't have parents primarily over them, caring for them. And this could be a place where some of you may have some pain. Where you feel like, from a worldly standpoint, you have been forgotten. You have been cast aside. You got picked last or whatever. And it's important to remember that the Lord cares very much about that. And there's a way in which almost like his eye focuses then on you in a different kind of way. His care focuses in on you. And there should be a comfort to you about that even in your wrestlings of feeling cast aside and rejected. There's also a warning in the sense of maybe you're someone who feels a lot of confidence in the fact that maybe from a worldly standpoint, you have some things going for you. And maybe that has caused you to cast others aside or to forget about them, to not give attention to the down and out and cast aside. And there's a sense that if that's the case for you, you have lost a godly focus, one that the Lord has for others that are down and out. We know from 1 Samuel 16, 7, when uh, Samuel is going to find out who the king is, who the anointed king will be. And so um, Jesse brings his sons before Samuel. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab. So Eliab was brought before him and thought, surely the, Lord, the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The thing that the Lord cares about the most in every single person on the face of the earth, where is their heart? Where is their heart at? And that should be our focus. Where is our heart at? Where are the hearts of the people around us? How can I shepherd the heart of the people around us? 
the people around me? How can I shepherd their heart? How can I pour into their hearts? And in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. This is, this is uh, Paul is getting us to consider about how God chose us to be his people. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So we're included in the foolish of the world. <laughs> okay? So if we were chosen by God, there's a sense in which we were the foolish in the world. Okay. To shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the Lord actually is glorified in how he chooses the weak things the weak people. His eye is focused on them in a different kind of way because in the end, he gets more glory, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that God gets more glory and he deserves to care about his own glory. He's God. So he's getting lots of glory from choosing the weak, looking for the downcast in the world, elevating them in his economy. Because it's God's economy that matters the most, right? Two more things to consider to just coming out of this. How is how he treats Leah uh, critical for his purposes? Well, first of all, look at two of her children that are born. Levi and Judah. So in the woman who was downcast and set aside, we have the priesthood coming through her, and we have the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly order. And Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So these two important tribes with the priests of God's people and the kings of God's people coming from Leah. This is an amazing thing through this woman who is cast off. Now for us, we have to remember a couple of things. We have to remember that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why would he say that? It's because the ones who are blessed are the ones who realize that they have nothing to bring to the table to make them right with God. They are the poor in spirit. They realize they have poverty in bringing things to God to justify themselves before him. So blessed are the poor in spirit. They will see God. So we have to understand our spiritual poverty before the Lord. That we have nothing on our own to bring. We have not, no measure of good works to bring before the Lord to make us right before him. So we have to view ourselves as being poor and having nothing. 
And then we see God's goodness to us, that even though we were so poor, that he actually cares about us and sets his love on us. This should make no sense. This should amaze us. So that the gospel ends up being bigger to us, doesn't it? The gospel then ends up being something that we love all the more because we, we know we're bringing nothing to the table. And why would God love us then? And this should then flow out of us into other people in our patience and kindness with them because the Lord has been patient and kind with us and has set his love on us when we didn't deserve it. And we need to remember to have eyes for those who are downcast in the world. So quickly and easily are we ready to associate and be around people who are like us, who seem to have benefits that we can gain from them. And we overlook the people, honestly, a lot of times that God would love to show his power and his might through. So from this story, I think that the Lord would call us to to have eyes for the downcast and to see ourselves as being very needy of God's care and his love set on us, just like Leah was in need of that. Because God could have easily set us aside because of our sin. He could have cast us away and we would have deserved it. But instead he set his love on us, sent his son Jesus to die for us, so that we could be in right relationship with him. So may that encourage us and spur us on. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this passage. Lord, even the Old Testament, uh, it's pointing to your goodness, Jesus. It's pointing to how you are always at work. The Old Testament is pointing us uh, to your fulfillment, Jesus, in dying for your people. So we thank you for that great picture. And we pray that that would spur us on into today and this week uh, to show great love and patience to others. And Lord, may we abide in you more because of realizing our, our spiritual poverty before you. May we abide in you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.